Hi, I'm Brianna. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome back to Corrupted Beings. Hello, so today we have a very special guest, Gracie Gibson. Hi, guys. Caitlin's sister is on the podcast today. She's our manager, too. She does a very bad job of keeping us on track. She does jack shit at keeping us on check. Why did I wave? Why did you wave? There's no one here. <laughs> Waves at the microphone oh like gosh. there's a camera. Oh my god. Uh, oh. Anyways, so today um, I'm covering the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, which is actually a pretty popular case. Um, one of the most popular cases. Yeah. Uh, actually, the you know the uh, movie Mur- Murder on the Oriental Express? Yeah. Orient Express? Um, they used the story of the Lindbergh baby <laughs> and switched the names or whatever. Anyways, so basically, 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh was kidnapped from his nursery on March 1st, 1932, and was later found on March 12th by a truck driver. <clears throat> well, the microphone fell. <laughs> Where's the other book? Oh, I don't know why I moved it. I don't know either. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay, keep going. Okay. Basically... His body was found 11 days after he was kidnapped. Um, Bruner Richard Hauptman was arrested for the crime in September of 1934, and he was executed on April 3rd, 1936. Good. Kill the man. Charles Lindbergh Jr. was born on June 22nd, 1930, to Charles Lindbergh Sr. and Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Lindbergh Sr. was an American aviator, military officer, author, inventor, and activist. Um, most famous for his nonstop flight from New York to Paris, which he won the... Ortig Prize. Which I'm not real sure what that is. I think it's a pilot pilot prize. We're gonna call it the pilot prize from now on. Pilot aviator. prize. Yeah. Pilot prize. So probably an aviation award. Okay. Well, pilot prize. I like the word. Okay. I like that better. Um. <laughs> this flight what uh, hit a lot of um first we'll call them. Uh, it was the first non-stop transatlantic flight. It was the first solo because he flied by himself. Obviously, that's what solo means. Um, it was the first flight between two major hubs, and it was the longest transatlantic flight. It was a turning point for aviation and history, and Lindbergh was also an author and aviator. So, the kidnapping. Around 10 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, the nurse, which was a nanny, Betty Glow, saw that Charles Jr. wasn't in the wasn't with his mother after checking the nursery. Immediately alerting, alerting Charles Sr., he immediately ran into the room, finding a ransom note in an envelope on the windowsill. He took a gun and began searching the grounds and house outside the baby's window, and w- and they found impressions and pieces of a wooden ladder and the baby's blanket. The butler called the Hopewell Police Department, while Lindbergh called his lawyer and friend, Henry Breckenridge, and the state police. Officers. <laughs> You're too far away from the microphone. Look how small it is. In search of the home and surrounding areas, around and around midnight, a, fin- a fingerprint em- expert was brought in to examine the letter and ladder, and no usable prints um, were found on either. So did um, they leave the ladder? Yeah. Dumbass. I think the ladder broke. We'll get to that in a minute. I, th- I'll get to my theory in a minute. Who leaves a ladder when kidnapping a baby? Well, Goddamn. so you know what's crazy is they found, since they said they found no fingerprints, but they found, they found no fingerprints where even witnesses said they tampered with. Gloves. Like they didn't. They found no prints on the windowsill, but witnesses said, "Oh yeah, I touched the windowsill." It was an inside job. No, I'm kidding. I don't know that. <laughs> I'm just saying. Maybe the witness was in on it. Maybe. And he was just trying to throw them off. Dun dun dun. Period. So he wore gloves, but then gloves. They I don't saw everything. 
I mean, they um, helped OJ out. Yeah, true. <laughs> the <laughs> only pr- okay, the only prints that were found were the babies. Poor baby. So the letter or Wait, the how old was the baby? A year. Uh-huh. So this was the note or the ransom note that was um, and it had really bad misspellings and grammar. Someone it was clearly Did this I person. Write it? <laughs> I don't know. Time traveler? I can't confirm nor deny. <laughs> Period. Dear sir, have fifty thousand dollars ready spelt I'd ask for more than that. Spelt R E D Y. Twenty five thousand and twenty dollar bills, fifteen thousand and ten dollar bills, and ten thousand and five five dollar bills. After two to four days we will inform you where to deliver the money, spelt M O N Y. We warn you for making any ding, any ding, public or for notify the police. The child is in gut, gut care. Indication for all letters are signatured, s- signatured and three holes. I still would ask for more because if I was a time traveler going back for $50,000, if I had $50,000 in cash and brought it back here, it'd still be $50,000. The inflation wouldn't affect the cash coming yeah, back and forth. if he wasn't a time traveler, that was a lot back in 1932. Anyway, so word spread quickly because obviously this is the child of like a very famous man. Hundreds stormed the property, destroying any evidence that could have been ever collected. Many uh, well-connected people arrived at the Lindbergh estate, including many military colonels that offered to help. Only one had um, law enforcement background, and that was Herbert Norman um, Schwarzkopf. He was the superintendent of the in or New Jersey State Police, and other colonels included Henry Skillman, Breckmidge, which was his lawyer and friend, William J. Donovan. He was a hero of World War One, and he later became he later uh, is the head of the OSS, not from Spy Kids. Um, Lindbergh and others believed that this was organ- organized by organized crime fighters, and it figures not fighters. And it was thought that the letter was written by someone who spoke German as a first language. Lindbergh used his influence and fame to control the investigation. Um, they contacted Mickey Rosner, a Broadway hanger-on, rumored to know mobsters. Rosner turned to two speakeasies, which were like people who ran pubs that yeah. were brought up during like the Prohibition or whatever. Secret pubs. Yeah, it was Salvatore, Salvi, Spitel, and... Irving Bits and Lindbergh quickly endorsed the, t- the duo and they became his I- intermediaries to deal with the mob. Many crime figures that were notably um, contacted were Al Capone, my man, mm-hmm, Willie uh, Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner Zillman. Offering, they offered to help return the child for money or for legal favors. Morning after President the after the kidnapping, President Hoover was notified of the crime, but at the time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime, so, um, and it seemed that there was no grounds for federal inv- uh, involvement yet. Hmm. The Attorney General at the time, William D. Mitchell, met with her- Hoover and announced that the whole Department of Justice would be set to help with any progress of the case that needed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, the Bureau of Investigation, later known as the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case um, with the United States Coast Guard, Customs, and Immigration were said that their help might be needed as well. Hmm. The New Jersey officials announced that a $25,000 reward for little Lindy's return was posted and it would be rewarded to anybody who could bring um, 
information and or the child himself. Yeah. The Lindberghs also offered an additional $50,000 reward. So that brought the total reward to $75,000, which in 2019, it was equivalent to uh, $1,172,000. That's wild as hell. And, That's a lot of money. Well, yeah, even then, but like, especially during the 1930s when they're still going through the Great Depression, like yeah. that was a lot of money for the time being. Yeah. So on March 6th, a new ransom letter had arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home, and it was postmarked March 4th from Brooklyn, and it carried the perforated red and blue marks. The ransom had been raised to $70,000, and a third ransom note postmarked from Brooklyn, and also including the secret marks, arrived in the, in the lawyer friend of the family, um, Breckenridge Mail. The note told the Lindberghs that John Coden should be the intermarry between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and requested a notification in the newspaper that the third note had been received. Instructions specified a size of the box, the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to contact the police. During this time, John F. Conan was a well-known Bronx personality and retired school teacher. He offered a ten, uh, he offered $1,000 if the kidnappers would turn over the child to a Catholic priest. Um, Conan received a letter reportedly written by the kidnappers and it authorized Conan to be their inter- intermediary with the Lindbergh and Lindbergh accepted the letter as genuine. Um, following the latest instructions, uh, Conan placed a classified ad in the New York American paper saying the money is ready um, and then Conan waited for the further instructions from the culprits. A meeting between Conan and the representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers eventually scheduled for one for late one evening at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. According to Conan, the man sounded foreign but stayed in the shadows during the conversation, and Conan was thus unable to get a close look at his face. Push him out the shadows. The man said his name was John, and he related his story that he was a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women, and the baby was being held on a boat, unharmed, but would be returned only for the ransom. When John... Uh, when Conan, John Conan, expressed the doubt that John actually had the baby, he promised some proof. The kidnappers would soon return the baby's sleeping suit. The, kid, the stranger asked Conan, would I burn it if the package were dead? And the question furthered, he assured Conan that the baby was alive. Mm. On March 16th, Conan received the toddler's sleeping suit by the mail and the seventh ransom note. After Lindbergh identified the sleeping suit, Conan placed a new ad in the home money is ready no cops no secret service i come alone like last time and on april 1st conan received a letter saying that it was time for the ransom to be delivered yikes so the ransom was packaged in a wooden box that was custom made and hoped it would be later identified the money included a number of gold certificates since they were about to be withdrawn from circulation and it was hoped for greater attention that the drawings would be seen by anyone spending them yeah um the bills were not marked but their show numbers were recorded and some sources uh, credit this idea to Frank J. Wilson and others to Elmer Lincoln Iray. On April 2nd, um, Conan was given a note by an intermediary known as the cab driver. Conan met John again and told him they had been able to raise only $50,000. The man accepted the money and gave Condon a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women. Um, now we're going on... So he got the money? Yeah. So, Shake now we're going to discover the body. And, um, excuse me, I got the date wrong. It wasn't March 12th. It was May 12th. Oh. Oops. It's okay. I didn't know any different. On it's May 12th, <laughs> a d- delivery driver 
named Orville Wilson and his assistant William Allen pulled to the side of the road about four and a half miles south of the Lindbergh home near the hamlet of Mount Rose in the neighboring Hopewell Township. When Allen went into a grove of trees to urinate, to pee, urinate, pee. Urinating? Yeah, he (laughs) discovered the body of a toddler. The skull was badly fractured and the body badly decomposed, with evidence of scavenging by animals. There were indications of an attempt of a hasty burial. Go identified the baby as the missing infant from the overlapping toes and the right foot and the shirt that she had made. It appeared the child had been killed by a blow to the head, and the Lim- and Lindbergh insisted on cremation. Oh, on June on June 1932, officials began to suspect that the crime had been perpetrated by someone the Lindberghs knew. Suspicions fell upon Violet Sharp, a British household servant at the Morrow home, who had given contradictory information regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. It was reported that she was ner- she appeared nervous and suspicious when questioning. She committed suicide on June 10th, 1932. 32 by ingesting a silver polish that contained cyanide just before being questioned after the fourth time. Her alibi was later confirmed and the police were criticized for the heavy handedness. And basically the police were blamed for her suicide. Oh, I mean, Colton was also requested questioned by the police and his home search, but nothing suggested was found. Charles Lundberg stood by Conan during this time. After the discovery of the body, Conan remained unofficially involved in the case. To the public, he had become a suspect and in some circles was vilified. For the next two years, he visited police departments and pledged to find Cemetery John. Conan's actions regarding the case were increasingly flamboyant. On one occasion, after riding the city bus, Conan claimed that he saw a suspect on the street and announced his secret identity, ordered the bus to stop. The startled driver compiled, compiled and Conan started from the bus, although his target eluded him. Conan's actions were also criticized and exploitative when he urged to appear in a vaudeville, 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 something like that, act regarding the kidnapping. Liberty Magazine published a serialized account of Conan's involvement in the Ligbert kidnapping under the title, Jeff C. Tells All, because... Uh, Jaffsey was the code name that Conan used when he was signing the letters in the news oh. newspaper. Um, investigators who had worked in the case were soon at a standstill. There was no developments and little evidence of any sort, so the police turned their attention to tracking the ransom payments. A pamphlet was prepared with the serial numbers on the ransom bills, and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses, mainly in New York City. After a few of the ransom bills appeared... In scattered location, some as far as Chicago and Minneapolis, but those spending the bills were never found. By presidential order, all gold certificates were to be exchanged for another bills by May 1st, 1933. A few days later, before the deadline, a man bought, brought 2980 to Manhattan Bank for an exchange. It was later realized that the bills were from the ransom. He had given his name as J.J. Faulkner from 537 West 149th Street, no one named Faulkner lived at the address, and Jane Faulkner, who had lived there 20 years earlier, denied involvement. During the 30-month period, a number of ransom bills were spent throughout New York City. Detective realized that many of the bills were being spent along a route of Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including a German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. Mm. And on September 18th, my birthday, <laughs> 
1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom. A New York license plate, 4U1341NY, penciled in the bill's margin, allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. The station manager had written down the license number because the customer was acting suspicious and possibly a counterfeiter. The license plate belonged to Bruno Richard Hauptmann, an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. Mm. When Hauptmann was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and over 14000 of the ransom money found in his garage. I was about to say don't trust Germans, but I'm German. <laughs> don't trust a hoe. Don't. don't trust me. So there you go. Oh, can't make a wife out of a hoe. We went two different routes with that. Hallman was arrested, (laughs) interrogated, and beaten at least once throughout the day and night. Yikes. Beat his ass. Well, I mean, yeah, but we like nice police. We don't like mean police. That's true. It's the 30s. We'll give him a break. Okay. The nightstick. Hallman stated that the money and other items had been left uh, with him by his friend and former business partner, Isidore Fish. Is that my elbow really hard on the wall? Rip. Um, Fish had died on March 29th, 1934, like literally right before the body was found. I want to say like two weeks before the body was found. Shortly after returning to Germany, Hauptmann stated that he only learned about Fish's death that the shoebox that he, that was left with him contained considerable sums of money, sums of money. He kept the money because he claimed that it was owed to him from a business deal that they had made together. So he's saying... Fish probably did the crime. I just got stuck with the money. Yeah, basically. He, what he's claiming. Yeah, he's he's claiming plausible deniability. But I think, I'm pretty sure that the only thing that they can, like, connect him to is, like, the physical evidence is the money. Yeah. When the police searched his home, they found a considerable amount of additional evidence that leads him to the crime. One of the items was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction ladder similar to that, that which, which was found at the Lindbergh home. The telephone number belonging to John Condon along with his address that were discovered written on the closet wall in the house. A key piece of evidence was a section of wood that was discovered in the attic of the home, and I'm assuming that wood belonged to the ladder that was used. After being examined by an expert, it was determined to be exact match of the wood. So they had an expert brought in, and yeah. yeah. There's wood experts? I mean, well, duh. Well, yeah, there's experts on everything. Like, especially when you have, like... Well, in the 30s, I guess I just didn't picture that being a thing in the 30s. I mean, yeah, you, like, really didn't have, like, a lot of tech. Yeah. That looks about the same. That looks about the same. Yeah, we'll go. We'll say it's the same. Yeah, we'll say it's the same. (laughs) Hauptman was was indicted in the Bronx on September 24th, 1934 for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later... On October 8th, Hauptman was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. And two days later, he was surrendered to New Jersey authorities by New York Governor Herbert H. Lehman to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child. Hartman was moved to Hunterton County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey on October 19th. Hauptman was charged with capital murder. The Good. trial was held at the Hardin County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey, and was soon dubbed the trial of the century. There were a lot of trials of the century. There were a lot of trials of the century. Especially in the 30s, man. Yeah, everything was part of the century back then. Like, even though geez. they were only 30 years into the century. Well, not only that, like, they have 100 years. 70 more years ago. Yeah. So that's crazy. They just topped each other. Bam, bam, bam. It's like, who could commit the perfect crime? Not Leopold and Loeb. Period. 
Reporters Not swarmed any of the, the people we're talking about. <laughs> no. Reporters swarmed the town, and every hotel room was booked. And Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchcard presided over the trial. I mean, Zodiac Killer got away with a lot of it. He still's gotten away with it. All of 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 it. He's dead now. Or is Ted Cruz? One of the two. Uh, Did you see a thing that says? We're going off for a second. Did you see the theory that they think the Zodiac Killer was a girl because only a girl could actually get away with it? Yeah. <laughs> actually, I did. And they're not wrong. Nope. I think it was a girl, too. I'm down with it. Women, female empowerment. Period. Let me explain why he only killed she men. She must have had a good reason. reason. And so explain why the, all the men, were the, all the men's, were all the victims men? No idea. I don't know. Maybe that'll make wrong the list. Wrong person to ask. Maybe that'll make the list. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> back back to, to it. Back to it. Back to it. Uh, <laughs> Back to uh, it. In exchange for the rights to publish Haltman's story in their newspaper, Edward J. Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Haltman's attorney. Mm. Um, uh, David T. Wilnitz, an attorney general of New Jer- the attorney general of New Jersey, led the prosecution. Evidence against Haltman included the $20,000 of the ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were similar to those of the ransom note. So are mine, though, so that says nothing. Eight handwriting experts, including Albert S. Osborne, pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Haltman's handwriting specimens. The defense called an expert to rebuke this evidence, while two others declined to testify. The later... The later, the latter, what two, the latter two demanded five hundred dollars before looking at the notes and were dismissed when Floyd, oh uh, not Floyd, Lloyd, I can't read, Fisher, a member of Haltman's legal team, declined. Other experts retained by the defense were never called to testify. So like basically, they all just like screw you. Well, they don't want to be associated with trying to get this man off because he he had killed a one year old. Yeah, I and not either. Let not Rod do. not only did they kill a one year old, but he also killed the baby of Charles Lindbergh. Let it die. Let, let it, it die. die. Let, let it shrivel up, up and die. die. <laughs> oh man. Um. I lost my place. Hold on. Okay. Uh. In the Hopman's attic. Uh. The matched a plank from the floor, uh, the type of wood, the direction of the tree growth, the milling pattern, and inside and outside of the wood surface, and grains on both sides were identical. And odd, and four oddly placed nail holes lined up with the nail holes that joist in Hopman's attic. Oh, yeah. So, you know how they said they found a piece of wood? Yeah. Okay, that piece of wood matched perfectly in Hopman's attic. Hmm. Burp. Interesting. Burp. Interesting. <laughs> When asked about why he had Conan's address and telephone paper, um, he said, uh, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and keep a little bit of record of it. Maybe And maybe I was just on, on the closet and was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you an explanation about the telephone number. His English was not very well. A sketch that uh, Wilmot suggested represented a ladder was found in one of Hopman's notebooks, and Hopman said this picture and other sketches were in there because of the work of a child. I'm not really sure what that means, but okay. 
<laughs> um, despite having an obvious source of inter of earned income, Hotman had bought a four hundred radio, four hundred dollar radio, That's approximately expensive. equivalent to seven thousand seven hundred and forty dollars in twenty twenty. I wouldn't even spend four hundred dollars on a radio now. Right, and sent his wife to Germany. I go to Germany. Hotman was identified as the man who whom the ransom money was delivered, and other witnesses testified that it was Hotman who had spent some of the Lindbergh gold certificates. And he was seen in areas of the estate in East Amwell, New Jersey, near Hopewell, on the day of the kidnapping. And he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and has quit his job two days later. Mm. Hopman never sought another job afterward, yet continued to live comfortably. He did it. He, he, he wasn't, done did it. He wasn't doing himself any favors by not getting a job. He done did it. When the prosecution rested its case, the defense opened a lengthy examination of Hopman. In his testimony, Hopman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of the gold certificates had been left for him in his garage by his friend Fish, who had returned to Germany in December of 1933 and died there in March of 1934. Mm. Conveniently. Hopman said that he had one day found a shoebox left behind by Fitch when Hopman had stored at the top of his shelf of his kitchen broom closet. Later discovering the money, which he later found to be almost $40,000, approximately equivalent to $609,000, Hopman said that Fitch had owed it to him. Be, ho, had, blah, 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 blah. English Caitlin. <laughs> Owed him about $7,500 in business funds, and Hotman kept the money for himself and had lived on it since January 1934. Convenient. The defense called Hotman's wife, Anna, to the to corroborate the fish story. On cross-examination, she said that while she hung her apron every day on the hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing any shoebox there. Mm. Which, I don't know why they brought the wife in to testify. I thought they couldn't do that. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they can do that. Maybe back then it was different. Maybe, I don't know. And that he had no money for medical treatment, and he died of tuberculosis. Fish died. Like, he couldn't, he didn't have any, any money or whatever. Oh. And he, that's how he died of tuberculosis. Um, Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford the three fifty weekly rent of his room. $3.50 for <laughs> rent. For your room. Per week. Oh, Come man. on now, man. He couldn't afford that. He could not afford that. So if he had gotten, like, money from, like, this kidnapping... He would have been able to afford it just You fine. would think. Anyways, in the closing summation, Riley argued that the evidence against Hotman was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness had placed Hotman at the scene of the crime, nor were his finger, fingerprints found on the ladder or on the ransom notes or anywhere in near the nursery. Mm. Hotman was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorneys appealed to the New York Court of Error court of error and appeals which at the time was the state's highest court and the appeal was argued on june 29 1935 new jersey governor gerald g hoffman secretly visited hoffman in his cell one evening of october 16th accompanied by a stenographer who spoke german fluently hoffman urged members of the court of errors and appeals to visit hoffman hoffman in late january 1936 while declaring that he had no he had no no position on the guilt or innocence of hoffman Hoffman cited evidence that the crime was a one was not a one-person job and directed Schwarzkopf to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties to just involved to justice. Yeah. It became known among the press that on March 27th, Hoffman considered a second reprieve of Hoffman's death sentence and seeking opinions. 
about whether the governor had the right to issue a second reprieve. On March 30, 1936, Hoffman's second and final appeal asking for clemency from the New Jersey Board of Pardons was denied. Hoffman later announced that this decision would be the final legal action in this case and that he would not grant another reprieve. Nonetheless, it was a postponement when Mercer County Grand Jury investigating the confession and arrest of Trenton attorney Paul Wendell requested a delay from Mark Warden Mark Ken, Kimberling. This, the final stay, ended in the Mercer County prosecutor informed Kimberling that the grand jury had adjourned after voting to end its investigation without charging Wendell. Hotman turned down a large offer from the Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for confession. He was electrocuted on, 9, on April 3rd, 1936. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous independent thoughts on the investigation, which had been, had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hoffman had sued the United, uh, the U.S. state of, of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband, and both suits were dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and the, because of the statute of limitation had run out. She continued fighting to clear his name until her death in 1994 at the age of 95. Jesus, that's a long time. Do you think um, he did it? I don't know. It's, I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't think he did it alone. No. I don't, and I don't think he murdered the child. I think he had, I think he had help. I think he had help too. In popular culture, Agatha Christie uh, was inspired by the circumstances of the case when she described the cat, the kidnapping of baby girl Daisy Armstrong in her Hercule, in her Hercule Perot murder. Yeah, Perot <laughs> murder on the Orient Express, and the kidnapping and its aftermath served as the inspiration for Maurice Sendak's book Outside Over There. Um, and the James uh, Patterson book, Along Came a Spider, and the film based on the novel, a character takes an inspiration from the kidnapping of the Lindbergh for his crime. The In 2013, uh, by Melanie Benjamin, The Aviator's Wife, is a historical fiction told from the perspective of Anne Morrow. And there were, there were songs about him, and there's a movie called Crime of the Century. I want to know if he did it. If he did, what was his plan? If he didn't do it, who did it? What was their plan? Like... What was the thought process to kidnap this child? It you crazy crazy do a lot of things for work for money. I know, but it's just a little baby. It was just a little little bubbles. I know. And they done murdered. And then pretended like he was alive to get the money. No, you fucked up. You don't deserve the money. You never deserved the money. It's not your money. So this was his last letter to the gov to Governor Harold G. Hoffman. Your Excellence, my writing is not for fear of losing my life. This is in the hands of God. It is His will. I will go gladly. It means the end of my tremendous suffering, only in thinking of my wife and my little boy. That is breaking my heart. I know that until this terrible crime is solvent, he will have. they will have to suffer under the weight of my unfair conviction. I beg you, Attorney General, believe at last... Believe at least a dying man. Please investigate, because the case is not solved. It only adds another death to the Lindbergh case. I thank your I thank your excellence from the bottom of my heart, and may God bless you. Respectfully, Brunner Richard Hotman. See, that's sad, but, like, I just, I don't know. Oh, that, this is, I haven't gotten to his last statement yet. Ugh. 
I got it. Right oh my here. god. Okay, let's hear it. I love last words. I'm. It's not. This is a lot. I'm glad that my life in the world, which has not understood me, has ended. Soon I will be at home with my Lord, so I am dying an innocent man. Should, however, my death serve for the purpose of abolishing capital punishment, such a punishment being arrived at only by circumstantial evidence, I feel that my death has been in vain, has not been in vain. I am at peace with God, I repeat. I protest my innocence for the crime for which I was convicted. However, I die with no malice or hatred in my heart. The love of Christ has filled my soul, and I am happy for him. Translated from German. Huh. I don't know if he did it or not. I want to say he did. But at the same time, like... I don't know. They don't have enough evidence to prove that he really, really did do it. Whoever... Whether he did it or not. If he did it, good. Dead. Bye. Whoever did it, hopefully... They had a horrible life if they did it and got away with it and lived on. I hope they had a horrible life and they're for sure dead now, but we lost the baby. Because I mean, my whole thing is like if the, if what's his name, the Hoffman, the attorney general or yeah. the governor, if he didn't believe he was innocent, why would he sit with him or why would he agree to meet with him alone to discuss clemency? Exactly. I don't know. It's a tough case. And, like, who's to say that, like, who's to say that that person that killed him is still not out there? Yeah. Well, they're probably dead now, but. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah, now. They're definitely not alive now. It's almost 100 years later. It's, what, 90? What year did it happen? It was, like, 87, 90 years ago, between there. Yeah. It happened a long time ago. It's just a sad case. It is a sad case because a one-year-old was killed. Either and way. Only that, no matter who did and, it, a one-year-old was killed. And I mean, that's he had a good point. Well, yeah. Also, but, like, if Hoffman didn't do it... It's two deaths in the Lindbergh case. Like he said, like, you're just adding another death and you're letting someone get away with this. Like, I didn't yeah. do it. Like, I mean, if you're going to go to your... Di- like, if your last words are, I'm innocent... Yeah. Like, you're still fighting. Yeah. And his wife didn't think he did it. It's tough. It's so hard. Like, it I is don't, so hard. This I whole case know. is just very difficult because of the circumstance. Like, if it was, like, I'm a lot more cold when it comes to, like, older people getting killed. But when it comes to children getting killed, it's tough. Oh, yeah. I cannot, It's hard. It's hard I to can't... listen to stories about kids getting killed or abused or anything. Like, it's hard. A lot of books have come out saying, like, proving, trying to prove all Hoffman's innocence. And mainly, the main idea behind it is the inadequacy of the police and the work of the crime scene. Well, and also... Well, and that's just like with the John Bonnet Ramsey case. Yeah. Like, how the police screwed up that evidence. And police police in, the ni- in 1934, I doubt New Jersey, first of all. Sorry to New Jersey, but, I mean... I doubt your police in ni- 1934 or whatever was, like top-notch shit right well and then like so according to author lloyd gardner a fingerprint expert dr um dr hudson applied a then applied the then rare silver nitrate fingerprint processor to the ladder and did not find hotman's fingerprints even in the places where the maker of the ladder must have touched it so they were saying he if he made the ladder if he built the ladder obviously his fingerprints would have been on it and they were nowhere near found Wow, did they find, so they didn't find any fingerprints, They though. They found no fingerprints. The only fingerprints they found at the scene were of baby Charles Lindbergh. That's wild to me, because you think you would find the nannies or, like, the parents or somebody's fingerprints. Exactly. 
Like, how is only the baby's fingerprints there? That doesn't make it, sense. Like, even the place where, like, the it's witnesses, even the witnesses said, oh, yeah, I touched this. There were no fingerprints there. It's like someone went in there and cleaned it. But even then, how would, like, ah, that just doesn't make sense to me. But, like, I wouldn't, like, who else would have done it? Because it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the mom or dad. Because they, they wouldn't have done that. No. I don't see the nanny doing it either. No. She wasn't with the baby. She thought the baby was with the mom. But he's just... It's so hard to talk during this case because he's such... He's just a little baby. He's just a little baby. He, he's just a little baby. <laughs> I'm gonna cry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Alright, guys. So thanks for listening. Uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram. At Cur- Corrupted Beings Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Beings Podcast. If you want to send us an email, it's CorruptedBeingsPodcast at gmail.com. Yes. If you want to like us on Facebook, it's Corrupted Beings Podcast. And if you feel so inclined to do so, please donate to our Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Corrupted Beings. Until next time. Peace out, Girl Scout. Later. Later.